Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of the Ministry Minded Podcast, a show that seeks to marvel at the mercy of God that meets us in our messy ministries. I am, of course, your host, Pastor Brad Gray. I serve as the senior pastor of Stonington Baptist Church right here in Paxinus, Pennsylvania. I am so happy that you clicked play on this particular episode. It's been a blessing to kind of collect some of these thoughts and put them together and uh, bring you this short uh, uh, edition of the Ministry Minded Podcast, wherein I hope to uh, give you some encouragement, bring you some insights, and allow you to continue to grow in your faith. That's really what this is all about. It's sort of me thinking out loud while also hopefully uh, the prayer is uh, discipling you as well along the way and just sharing some uh, articles, some stories, and links that I have found uh, insightful, helpful, or encouraging uh, throughout the past couple days or so. So uh, that's what I hope to do this morning. I got a couple of good ones for you, so hopefully you can sit back and enjoy, and uh, we'll get right to all of that good stuff right after this word from our sponsor, uh, Fresh Roasted Coffee. Do you like coffee? I know that you do, and that's why I want to tell you about Fresh Roasted Coffee. Fresh Roasted is a locally owned and operated coffee house right here in central Pennsylvania that is committed to providing the highest quality coffee on earth. They do so by sourcing only the freshest coffee beans and by using the most eco-friendly roasting technology in the world. Fresh Roasted's USDA certified organic coffee beans ensure that your coffee is consistently regulated at each stage of the production process and completely free of GMOs and harmful synthetic substances. Fresh Roasted Coffee roasts their beans per order with immediate packaging and shipping directly to your door, meaning that you get to experience fresh coffee at its peak drinkability. That's what I like. I was introduced to Fresh Roasted Coffee soon after moving to Central Pennsylvania, and I'm so happy I was because I think it's literally the best coffee out there. Their Blackbeard's Revenge blend is out of this world good. Whether you use a regular drip coffee maker or a pour-over or a French press, however you get your coffee fix, make it fresh roasted. Go to the link in the notes for this show and use the offer code GRACE10 at checkout. That's offer code GRACE10 at checkout to get a discount on your next order. So this morning I want to start off with an article that was published a couple of weeks ago um, by my friend, uh, but also my editor over at uh, Mockingbird. Uh, He wrote an article called The Tales the Carpenter Told. Todd Brewer put this together, uh, and it's a great article that sort of just works off of sort of the premise that... You know, we have all these parables of Christ, these parables that Christ told to the people that he was ministering to. Um, and the parables are, oft, are, 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 of course, very much a topic of conversation uh, by a lot of theologians, by a lot of people who study the Bible, who want to become more adept with their knowledge of Scripture and all that kind of stuff. Um, but what I always find interesting is just that... Um, the parables are often confused, they're often um, misinterpreted, uh, they're often um, allegorized. You know, I wrote an essay a couple of months back myself on the parables just about that very idea, the allegorization of parables and just how um, how kind of treacherous it is to get into those waters wherein we're, we're, we're allegorizing these stories that that Jesus told for a specific reason, for um, a specific purpose. Um, 
and um, and how, at least in that article that I wrote, uh, my main point was to try and say that the parables aren't Jesus's version of Aesop's fables, um, and. It is interesting how the parables are often this topic of conversation, uh, continually being interpreted or reinterpreted or reconfigured in some ways. Um, but I love what Todd Brewer does. That's just a long, winding introduction to Brewer's article, which I found incredibly fascinating. Um, not only because I love reading about the parables, because they're enigmatic and, and powerful and revealing and all that kind of stuff, but because I think Todd raises this amazing question Um this question that I think I, at least I had never thought of before, um, is that, you know, so if you think about the parables, think about your, your most favorite parable. Maybe it's the parable about the lost sheep or the lost coin or the lost son from Luke 15, or maybe it's about the wheat and the tares, or maybe it's about the mustard seed, or maybe we could go on, we could go on and on, on all the different parables that Jesus told it's fascinating to me that out of all of the analogies that Christ used and implemented when teaching, uh, you know, as the old saying goes, these heavenly truths with earthly wisdom, or however that saying goes, <laughs> earthly story, heavenly stories with an earthly meaning, that's what it is. Um, when he's telling all these stories, it's fascinating to me that he never uses an analogy from his own family business. Um, this is what Todd writes. He's, he says, uh, As mysterious as Jesus' sudden career change was for his family, and they were none too pleased, see Mark 3.21, it is more surprising that this traveling preacher, famed for his analogies, refrained from using imagery from the family business. Jesus told parables about bakers and widows, fishermen, travelers, tailors, merchants, and shepherds, but not carpenters. The imagery of Jesus, or excuse me, the imagery Jesus routinely employed in his teaching was agricultural, seeds that sprout, sowers who sow, and farmers who rest and harvest. Jesus had owned a hammer, but never spoke of nails or lathes, end quote. And I think that that is a very enticing way in which to introduce this incredible topic, only because it is interesting. Jesus, the carpenter's son. He is famed for being the carpenter's son. In one of the Gospels, the people that knew him best knew him as that, the carpenter's son. So perhaps he was proficient in that skill as a craftsman. Perhaps he was proficient at being able to erect a certain structure out of beams of wood. And yet, for all of that proficiency, Jesus never capitalize perhaps on that skill in order to illustrate any of the things he wanted to illustrate regarding heaven. And as Todd makes clear, I think it's and I I think he's spot on with this in this article. He never used illustrations from his family business of carpentry because the kingdom of God is not built. It's planted. And that might seem like a really simple idea, but I think it actually is a very profound assertion, one in which I think changes the way in which Jesus, or the way in which we read Jesus's point in all of those parables. Again, the, the parables are not Jesus's Aesop's fables. They are revelations of what he has come to do. He has come to usher in the kingdom of God, and that kingdom is not built, it's planted, uh, because he is the seed that must die before the kingdom can flourish. 
As the scriptures say, a seed cannot sprout unless it dies first. And that seed is Christ. He goes into the ground, taking our death and our sin with him, and he dies his own death. And yet, out of his resurrection flourishes a heavenly kingdom that has been planted with the deep roots of his atoning grace and redemption. You see, this is what how Todd Brewer sums up his article. Quote, Walking around the Sea of Galilee, Jesus would have surely observed the radical transformation of the landscape through the seasons. Noticing how the brown bareness of winter gave way to verdant green, an idea takes root, the kingdom of God is not built, but planted. And with that, I think, he transforms the way in which we read the parables. Todd, applause to you for this great piece. I think it is so incredibly helpful and insightful to understand not just the parables, but perhaps Jesus's uh, intentions with using parables to illustrate the kingdom of heaven at all. Definitely go read that piece, The Tales the Carpenter Told. That's been what about this. One of my preaching on recently, uh, I'm almost done with Kings. Very happy to report that um, by the time this comes out, I'll be nearly done by uh, with Second uh, Kings chapter 20, and I will be uh, getting way, uh, getting ready to study the last couple chapters of Second Kings and uh, sort of see the way in which the kingdom sort of unravels in its twilight days. I think you'll find, as I have found, that these books of history are much more relevant than we first give them credit for. And even as these kings and kingdoms are falling and crumbling, we have been given lesson after lesson of faith and devotion. And uh, I think in that regard, they are incredibly timely. They show us uh, what happens when we have fractured allegiances, when we have um, the uh, wherewithal to follow one thing and then say another thing. And we see over and over again Yahweh coming to the side, coming to the aid of those who need him most, those who are so incredibly desperate. And for that, I think I'm very thankful very thankful that God has given us these words, these incredible truths of Scripture that have allowed us to get a glimpse into these lives, and they allow us to get a glimpse into our own life. So uh, go back, go listen to some of the Second Kings sermons, the First Kings sermons that I have been able to deliver. I think you'll be really encouraged. As I have reflected on this series as a whole, I have been so incredibly thankful uh, not just for the ability and for the uh, for the opportunity to study these incredible passages, but just for the themes that have come out come to the surface, namely uh, the themes of providence and sovereignty and power. Uh, that even within our own day, there is not one second that exists, that happens, that occurs, that is without the sovereignty of God behind it. All of the moments that we read about in Kings of king after king falling and failing and bringing on more and more heinousness into the kingdom of promise, all of that was done even with the sovereign Lord sitting on the throne, which I think reminds us of our own days when we see corruption seemingly take over the landscape. We look out our bedroom window and we see just incredible amounts of turmoil and tribulation and tumults on the horizon. And we see, perhaps, uh, but dimly through all of the cloud of 
stress and anxiety and vitriol that spewed forth back and forth between sides, between donkeys and elephants. We see all of that and we might be led to believe that, you know what, those, those people are right, there is no God. There is no ruler who sits on the throne. I think what Kings reminds us of is that despite the utter chaos of our days, there is a king who rules. There's a king who reigns. And that might be an overly, overly simplified version of what the historian has aimed to show in Kings, but I think it is the, simplified tru- the simple truths that speak the loudest and that resonate the most. That yes, even within all of the commotion of our own day, which is rife with incredible amounts of scandal, sin, wickedness on display that is so brazenly uh, sort of brandished by those who have no fear of the Lord at all in their hearts. Even as all that occurs, there's a king who reigns, and his reign never ends. And for that, I'm thankful thankful to study on these beloved passages of Scripture. Uh, Go and listen to those sermons. I hope you'll be encouraged. What am I reading recently? Well, I have, I told you, I think, a while ago, and I've been working on these uh, sermons for a little bit. I've been reading through the sermons of one Tobias Crisp. Um, If you haven't heard of him, I'm not surprised. If you have heard of him, uh, I wonder what your thoughts are of him. Um, I have loved to come across these sermons. He wrote a collection of sermons that was published after his death, entitled Christ Alone Exalted. They were published by his son, Samuel Crisp, who took it upon himself to clear his dad's name. You see, the story of Tobias Crisp is one of my favorite stories, I think, Perhaps in all of church history, um, it rivals my love of reading about the Reformation, only because I think the story of Tobias and Samuel Crisp so clearly uh, illustrates just what it is that we get wrong about grace. You see, the story of Tobias Crisp goes like this. Tobias was a preacher, a preacher in London in the early 1600s, and He was known, he became known for preaching an adamant and very staunch message of grace. Specifically, we might use the phrase, free grace. His collection of sermons, Christ Alone Exalted, is essentially a very long and very perhaps extended exposition of Isaiah 53, wherein he talks about how Christ is the suffering Savior who takes sin for the sinners and therein makes atonement for them. In this, he uses this text as a way to exemplify and to example the grace of God as seen in Jesus on the cross, and more specifically, to say that Jesus takes our sin. Jesus becomes the sinner on the cross for those who need a substitute. And throughout all of his sermons, he is simply expounding the doctrines of, we might say, imputation, just the very fact that he takes on our sin that he might give us his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 is a passage that comes to mind, that he became sin, who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God, right? That's, that's the gospel. After his death, he died at a young age, Tobias did, of smallpox. After his death, 
some of the religious elite of his own day, perhaps on the other side of the river, if you will, decided that Crisp's sermons were too unruly and perhaps heretical, that they needed to be excised from existence. So they did their best to not only ban Crisp's sermons from ever being published again, they even took it upon themselves to take Crisp to court, if you will, and he was, yes, publicly uh, ruled and declared, decreed an antinomian having this sort of scarlet letter stamped upon his name as one who was a false teacher, tendering and proffering a false gospel. This, of course, after his own death, wherein he was unable to give any sort of defense for himself. And years, perhaps, went by, with Chris being known as this sort of black swan of Puritanism. A day and age in which the Puritans were rife with theological treatises and works of theology expounding the devotion and discipline that is necessary for those of the faith. Crisp, Tobias Crisp, that is, was a little bit different. He preached a message of favor, of forgiveness, of, we might even say, one-way love. And this was almost unheard of. So for years, Crisp existed as this pariah of Puritanism, until, that is, his son took up the mantle that his father left behind. Samuel, Crisp, gathered his father's old manuscripts of sermons and republished them, along with his own work called Christ Made Sin, wherein he takes it upon himself for page after page to vindicate his daddy's reputation. Both of those works, I highly commend to you. I'll link to them in the notes below, but I commend them to you knowing that they are difficult to read, not only because they exist within the age of Puritan linguistics, but because they are labored treatises to prove sort of the worth, if you will, to prove the merits of the sermons that exist, which then creates this incredible juxtaposition wherein these two, Samuel and his father before him, were simply expounding the gospel. And yet they have, at these moments in history, come and been forced to go to great lengths to defend the truth of the gospel, that Christ became sin for those who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. You see, I think the story, and <laughs> I say all this, and this is just for anyone listening, if you ever read one day that I have come out with a dissertation, which I'm not working on one, but if I ever were to work on one, it would be on this topic. So I'm giving you sort of a teaser. I'm giving you a preview of what that will eventually look like if I ever get a chance to work on that. <laughs> but I think what this story shows us is that we are so prone and inclined to misinterpret the grace of God. We would much rather abide and exist according to our own merit rather than take the free favor of God by faith because it's, it sounds too easy. The gospel sounds too good to be true. How can it be possible that all that is required of us is to repent and believe, to look and to live? And yet that is the good news. The good news is just that, the grace of God given to us not according to our merit, not according to what we deserve, but just the very opposite. Crisp captured that in an incredibly profound way, 
both the Father and the Son did. And I pray that uh, as his writings continue to come out into the limelight, I pray that you are encouraged by them, that you are enriched in the tremendous gospel truths that they present and that they hold. What's been helpful recently, as we continue moving on in today's episode, I want to highlight a particular article that was written over on 1517 by one Robert Cobb. The article is entitled, That Passage Needs Another Look. And what he does is he talks about the idea of pure versus applied research. That might seem like a technical juxtaposition or a very esoteric differentiation, but there's a lot to learn, I think, from this difference here, as he seems to say that there's a difference between how we approach the Bible for our research, for our study. Cobb starts like this. He explains his premise in this way, quote, natural scientists distinguish what they label pure research from applied research. Applied research has a goal to find out a specific answer to a specific question, a specific solution to a specific problem. It begins with a plan designed to follow one or more possible paths to reach the goal. Its intention is to produce certain beneficial results for humankind, for human knowledge, or perhaps for an employer waiting for new information or hoping for new products. Pure research, however, ventures into unexplored fields, usually connected with the scientist's knowledge of an adjacent field which has posed questions from just over the fence. It does not have a goal prescribed by industry or fashioned by emergencies of the time to guide it. It delves into the unknown on the basis of the known, but with a joy or hope of discovery, led by a guess or a hunch or just plain curiosity. Pure research is risky business. It can end up a waste of time. And in this, he has just laid the groundwork for perhaps the ways in which we approach the scriptures and the ways in which we approach the scriptures that can sometimes lead to unintended discoveries. You see, what Cobb seems to um, say throughout this piece is that applied research, when it comes to studying the Bible, is perhaps sometimes beneficial, but the disciple of God will be much more of a pure researcher, one who delves into the pages of Scripture, not necessarily with a specific goal in mind, but just on hunch, just on the plain curiosity of just the realization that with the next turn of the page, the revelation of God will be made clear to him. You see, Cobb says it like this, quote, take the risk. This is especially true for those involved in professional service to God's people who spend a lot of time engaged in preparing for specific assignments, assignments from self, from the paracopes, from the wishes of those participating in Bible study, and from particular witnessing or counseling challenges. Such study can be quite enriching, especially as it's cross-pollinated by insights from those to whom we are presenting the biblical messages. No ex- text exists without context, both at its origin and at its application. Our reasons for applying texts in a sermon or a Bible class, in witnessing to someone outside the faith, or bringing God's Word to bear on lives, help make what the Holy Spirit said become what He is saying today. Nonetheless, In addition to such applied, goal-oriented approaches to the Bible, all Christians need to amble or stroll through the words from the prophets and apostles, just for the fun of it, for a relaxing chat with the Holy Spirit. 
fine texts of scripture or of the writings of dedicated servants of the gospel that have evaded your glance for some time or forever up to now and plunge into them. The water may be icy, but its warmth will come through. The lights begin to go on, as one noted, and new thoughts spring to mind or take a pericope or a book. You think you know well and let its words pour over you like a warm stream of water in the shower. Experience a new aha insight from familiar passages out of which you have drawn the same insights for years. I love how Cobb puts that. Go to the Bible just for the fun of it. Go to the scriptures, not out of some applied research sort of formula with an intentioned goal of finding some specific answer, but go just for the pure enjoyment of research and study and reflection and meditation, as I like to say, chew on the word. Because you enjoy how it tastes, you enjoy what it says, you enjoy what the scriptures reveal to you about your God. That, I think... It's what marks a true disciple of the word. Perhaps it's risky. Sometimes you'll read a passage and you're not sure perhaps what you're supposed to glean out of it. You're not sure if you will get a nugget out of your particular passage of scripture for the day, some sort of succinct or trite phrase out of which you can glean some sort of uh, simple insight. But perhaps there's something deeper going on in the text that forces you, that requires you, to chew on it a bit more. God, I think, intends for us to be right in that particular spot. The risk of pure research, I think, is the pattern for true discipleship. What should you remember today? Well, I want to leave you with this quote from Tobias Chris, with perhaps the intention of whetting your appetite for more of his writings. He says in one of his sermons, quote, Observe the strain of the gospel, and you shall find that no sin in the world can be a bar to hinder a person from having a part in this Christ that is given. I love the good news of this that Crisp here uh, articulates, that no sin is ever a hindrance for anyone to come to Christ for forgiveness, because he is an utterly powerful Savior whose salvation is to the uttermost notwithstanding the height or the depth or the extent of your sin, he can redeem you. That's the good news. Thanks for listening. I hope you've been blessed by this episode of Ministry Minded. Subscribe to the show uh, right here on Substack, Apple, or on Spotify. Thanks for your encouragement, your support, your prayers. If you have a particular topic in mind for next episode, let me know. Give me a comment. Give me an email. I'll be glad to discuss whatever is on your mind. Uh, Until then, I'll see you next time. Blessings. Blessings.